All right, so uh, we are going to be looking at several different passages this morning. If you're one of those that likes to be where we're going to be, uh, we're going to start in Matthew chapter 4 here in a moment. Um, but I'll start off by saying Happy New Year. Um, I know we got several, we got some people are struggling with uh, some sicknesses and things, stuff like that in their house, and, um, and it's cold, but it's winter. And um, so how many of y'all made resolutions this year? Anybody? Anybody a resolutioner? I got a couple of y'all. Um, how many of y'all actually made it to midnight New Year's Eve? Oh, most of you, I did not. Uh, Abby and I tapped out about, we saw the ball drop New York time, and that's when we tapped out, and um, Jamie was very disappointed because we were getting so close to bringing the new year. I guess she stayed awake and watched it on her phone, but uh, I, I was done. Uh, about 11.20, I, I went to bed and, and called it, but uh, a lot of times we make resolutions during this year, and, and I began thinking about resolutions. Resolutions are really reminders, aren't they? We make resolutions because it's reminders of things that we should be doing or things we shouldn't be doing. Uh, like we remind ourselves, you know, I really should watch what I eat or I really should exercise or I really should lose some weight or I really should do better with finances and stuff like that. And, and so we remind ourselves that's what we should do or what we shouldn't be doing. And, and that's kind of where we're going to be this morning. We're going to be looking at the heartbeat of Harvest Hill. And it's not a re resolution for us as a church or even as God's people. It's a reminder of what we are to be doing as a church as the body of Christ, and what we will be doing as God's people in the, word, in the world. And so we do this several times a year. You all probably are familiar with this, as we go and remind ourselves throughout the year, which is, is biblical. God told his people throughout the Old Testament to remember these things and to record these things and, and to remind themselves of these things, because we as people can be forgetful at times. We can forget something that we said we were going to do even yesterday. And so we need these reminders, okay, this is what we're supposed to be about. This is the mission that we have. And so we launched this back in 2017. And uh, you also may be familiar that back on the back wall, back above Larry's head, is the four bulletin boards where we have each heartbeat. And so we have ministries and activities that go on that we put on that board that kind of form that heartbeat. And we call it the heartbeat because without a healthy heart, we can't do the things we're supposed to be doing. And so as a church, we're called to have a healthy spiritual heart as well. Um, and so we began uh, looking at this, and how we formed this was in Matthew chapter 4, verse 19. And in here we find the calling of the disciples, where Jesus says, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And we're probably familiar with this passage. We've probably taught from this passage, heard this passage. But this is the time where Jesus is finally inviting these four fishermen to come and be his disciples, not just to be his companions, but to follow him, to learn from him. And at this point in Scripture, we know that a couple of them already met Jesus, and that's where our heartbeat begins. We have to meet Jesus. Um, we're not a believer. We're not saved. We do not have eternal life. We're not forgiven for our sins until we have personally met and accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And so in meeting Jesus, we then become followers of Jesus. The original Christians were first called disciples because they were followers. And we're going to actually look at a passage when they were first called Christians in Scripture when we turn to the book of Acts here in a moment. And so when we follow Jesus, what we're doing is we're following the Holy Spirit, which God has gifted to us, and we're following the Word of God, which is the recorded voice of God to guide and lead us in this life. And so in Matthew 4.19, when Jesus says, follow me, he was inviting these men into a personal relationship with him, just as he does with us when he uh, reveals that we need him as our Lord and Savior. And so Jesus also tells them in verse 19 of Matthew chapter 4, what's going to happen when they and we follow him? He says, he will make you. 
So after meeting Jesus and then following Jesus, Jesus says the goal is for us to mature in our relationship with God. He's telling us and he's telling these men at this time in Matthew chapter 4 that he wants to mature us and make us into something that we were not before we met Jesus. So he wants to make them into fishers of men and holds the final two aspects of our heartbeat. That to be a fisher of men, Jesus is saying, okay, I'm going to mature you to a point where you are going to be in ministry or mission for the kingdom of God for the sake of multiplying uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus' ministry model, where we did our heartbeat, is actually the bookends of the Gospel of Matthew. You have Matthew chapter 4, which says, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And then Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says, and Jesus said to them, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so what we see in Jesus' ministry and his disciple-making process, he has eternal intentions, just as he has eternal intentions with us. Once we meet Jesus, we've accepted him as our Lord and Savior, we are then called to mature in that relationship, to get on ministry and mission for the kingdom of God for the sake of multiplication. And so Jesus would take his disciples in Matthew chapter 4, and he would minister them to them and mature them over a course of three years. And in those three years, he would send them out a couple times just so they could gain experience about what it is to be on the mission field and be a part of ministry, to prepare them for the sake of multiplication, which was fully going to explode in the book of Acts in chapter 2, where we're told that the Holy Spirit came upon the first believers and 3,000 souls were saved in one day. And I read that in Acts, and I think, okay, yeah, but that's Jesus, and that's the apostles, and that's incredible. I mean, can you imagine if 3,000 souls came to Christ in one day through what Harvest Hill is doing? But that's the power of the Holy Spirit that's inside of us. When we look and say, okay, it's Jesus, yeah, he is Jesus. He is far superior, superior to us. He is God incarnate. He has the wisdom and power of God upon him. But the apostles were men like us. The followers were people like us who struggled with sin, who struggled with doubt. The difference was is the Holy Spirit came upon them. And this is why Peter is led to write in 1 Peter, or 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, that through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So we meet Jesus. We accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We accept the forgiveness he gives us for our sins. We accept the promise of eternal life that is only found through Jesus Christ. And what Jesus and God then do is they put their Holy Spirit inside of us, this eternal deposit, this unfading inheritance that now seals us for eternity. And Scripture says, with the Holy Spirit inside us, we have now become the temple of the living God. And so God dwells in our midst. He is in this place. It doesn't matter about the amount of people are here. We have the Spirit, and God is here. So the only leg up the apostles had in Scripture is that they physically walked and talked with Jesus. But now that we have the Spirit, we get to spiritually walk and talk with Jesus. And that's about getting into His Word. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the life of Saul Paul, and see the implications of the heartbeat that Saul even lived out in his life and what it means for our life individually and also for, as a church. Uh, we're first introduced to Saul in the book of Acts. If you want to make your way there, uh, we're going to be getting into uh, Acts uh, chapter 9 here in a moment. Uh, we're first introduced to Saul, Paul, in Acts chapter 8, though. 
Now, just as a little background, Saul's name change was not the same as like we find in the Old Testament when you have Abram and Abraham. Saul was his Jewish name. Paul was his Roman name. And so he has this dual citizenship, and we read throughout the book of Acts of him calling this dual citizenship as a Jew and a Roman citizen to his defense when he's put on trial in numerous different times. So to get an understanding of Paul, we need to look at a little bit of his bio. So I told you to go to Acts. Actually, go to Galatians first. And Galatians in the New Testament is one of the letters Paul was led to write by the power of the Holy Spirit to the believers in Galatia. And in Galatians, Paul brings up his background, his, his bio, because the believers there are struggling with this false gospel and a false doctrine. They're dealing with legalism. So what Paul begins by doing is bringing up his background to show this idiocy when it comes to legalism. Now, legalism is when we believe we can do something to work our way to God. So we develop these lists of do this and don't do that, which is fine. We should have barriers. But if we're doing things or not doing things because we think that earns us merit or more grace or more of God's love, that's wrong. That's a false gospel. And so legalism relies upon us producing rather than what God has actually produced for us through Jesus Christ. And Paul deals with this in Galatians by bringing up his background. In Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 11, he says, For I would have you know, brothers... That the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now here he goes to his background. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently, and I tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father's. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And what Paul is referring to is what we can read in Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 9. Paul begins as we all begin before we meet Jesus. We are in opposition to what God is doing. We are his opponents. Scripture defines those who do not have Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior, are actually enemies of God. And this is what Paul is saying, is that I was in Judaism. I was, I was growing within the Jewish religious system. I was zealous, and I violently tried to destroy the church because he was not a Christian. He had not met Jesus. He was in opposition to what God was wanting to do. And so if you're here this morning, if you've yet to accept Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, the Bible says you are God's enemy. You are his enemy. But that can change by meeting and accepting Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Philippians, Philippians chapter 3. Paul goes a little more of his background. Again, the Philippians are dealing with this idea of proving oneself and having confidence in the flesh. And Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 4, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else, if anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrew, as the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul's telling us in the Philippian believers, he said, look, I am a full-blooded Jew. 
I am part of the original covenant given to Abraham to which God has declared who his people would be. And that's back in Genesis chapter 12. He says, look, I was a Pharisee. I was zealous for the law. I kept the law and I interpreted the law and I taught the law. This would have made Paul an incredible individual within his own society. But he goes on and says, I rose within the Jewish religious system. And before I met Jesus Christ, I sought and sought to put an end to Christianity, to what those who were following Christ, I wanted to end it. But look what Paul says immediately after he talks about his background in verse 7 in Philippians 3. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And here's what Paul's telling us. He has come to this understanding it doesn't matter what he had accomplished in his past life. He has come to the understanding it doesn't even matter what baggage he has had in his past life. Now that he has met Jesus, Jesus has changed his, him completely and changed his outlook on life. Now, we first meet Paul back in Acts chapter 8. So go with me there in Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, in verse 1, it says, And Saul approved of his execution. The execution or the martyrdom is speaking of Stephen, who has just been martyred for the faith. And Paul is there, and he is approving of the execution. Then we're told in verse 3 of chapter 8 that Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. The word ravaging there in verse 3 carries a sense of meaning to lay to waste. And so if we just take our minds back to what happened about a month, month and a half ago when the tornadoes went through Kentucky, and you see the images of those towns laid to waste, this is what Paul is doing. He is ravaging and laying to waste anyone who is associated with Jesus Christ. He's bent on causing damage and harm to anyone who is associated with Christ or is a follower of Christ's te teaching. So basically in Acts chapter 1, verse 1 and 3, there is blood in the water because Stephen has just been martyred. And Paul is getting this sense of blood and now he's bent on wreaking havoc. And so this is the murderous heart of Saul, who would later become known as Paul. It is consuming him. And though Paul, Saul, disappears the rest of chapter 8, he reappears in chapter 9 of Acts, in verse 1 and 2. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So if they found any, any belonging to the way, and that's what Christianity was called at first, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. That phrase in verse 1, about breathing threats and murder, it carries the connotation of being out for the kill, being on the hunt. Saul, at this moment in his life, he's so attached to Judaism that he is going after believers wanting to slaughter them. This is the man whom God was going to commission to write the majority of what we call the New Testament. His heart was hard. It was full of evil. Now, as a Pharisee, which we read of his bio, he would have known the law of God. He would have known that the law says, you shall not murder. But Saul was so consumed with what he wanted to do and what he wanted to accomplish that he didn't care. So here's the question. How did a man so bent on murdering anyone associated with Jesus Christ, with Christianity, with the way, end up writing this in Philippians chapter 1? 
For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. How did someone wanting to cause so much damage, wreak so much havoc, bent on murdering and slaughtering believers, come to a place that, all right, all I have to do in life is to live for Christ, and if I die by living for Christ, I've gained it all. Well, this is the power of meeting Jesus. This is what many of us here, if not all of us here, have have encountered when we have met Jesus Christ and have, have gained salvation. It changes us. This is why Paul was led by the Spirit in 2 Corinthians to write, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So when we meet Jesus and we accept Jesus Christ, Jesus doesn't just patch our heart. He doesn't just use duct tape. He doesn't even use that flex seal stuff that you can build a boat with. Jesus makes us completely new. He makes us a new creation. He gives us a fresh heart. When we have come to salvation, he gives us a fresh beginning. Now, when I go out to eat with my family, I, I can't stand it when I order food and I don't get all that I ordered. And that typically happens through a drive-thru. But I, I, even, I can't stand it when I order food and you get to it and it's cold. I, I feel like the restaurant has stolen from me. I feel like I've been cheapened, and, and, and I feel like it was something just sitting on the side, like, oh, just give that to them. And I, it just angers me. I want to order food, and when I pull it out of the bag, I want it to be like smoking, like when fajitas at a Mexican restaurant come to your table. I want it to sizzle. I want to have to tell my kids, hey, look, it's hot, so take your time, blow on it, or let it sit there for a little bit. I, I want to be able to say that when I order food. Why? Because it's fresh. I know that it has just been cooked. I know it has just been prepared. When Paul says that we are a new creation, he's saying when we met Jesus, it changes our heart. It freshens our heart. It changes our allegiance. It gives us a new allegiance. It gives us a new outlook on life. It changes our actions and our words. It even changes the people that we're going to associate with, and it changes the things we do. It even changes the places we are going to go, all because we've met Jesus, and he's made us new. He's made us a new creation. Now, returning to Acts chapter 9, look in verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, again, he's on his way to Damascus. He approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Just a few notes from our passage. Notice that when Jesus speaks to Saul in verse 4, he says, why are you persecuting me? See, as a believer, when we become persecuted, when the church becomes persecuted, we shouldn't take it personally on ourselves. It's persecuting Jesus Christ. He takes it personally. He takes it personally when his brothers and sisters are persecuted. He takes it personally when his church is persecuted. And so when Paul says, who are you, Lord, in verse 5, he's not confessing Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior in this moment. That word Lord means master. All Paul is doing in this moment is realizing he is in the presence of someone who is far superior to him. And so he is understanding, okay, whoever this is, he is more powerful. He is greater than I am. Paul is yet to fully meet 
Jesus. He has come to this place where he has encountered him. He's heard his voice, but he hasn't come to understand him. But we also notice here a couple things about when we meet Jesus. I mean, what happened with Paul? When we meet Jesus, people around us should be able to hear it. Notice it says that Saul's companions, verse 7, heard the voice but seen no one. People should know that we have met Jesus Christ and accepted Jesus Christ by what they hear coming out of us. There should be an evidence that we are a new creation by our new way of speaking. We speak different than the world. We also notice when, people, when we meet Jesus, people around us should also be able to see a difference. Saul's companions could see that Saul could no longer see, and so he was going to need their help. And finally, we see when we meet Jesus, we are being called to follow Jesus' commands. Jesus told Saul, rise and enter the city, verse 6, and you'll be told what to do. And what does Saul do? He rises and he goes to the city of Damascus. Because when we meet Jesus, it should impact us, but it also should impact people around us. It is a personal relationship that spreads out into mission, ministry, and multiplication. There should be a difference. This is the new creation that Paul is writing about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. It's what he would continue to write throughout, throughout his letters to the believers about there should be a difference in the way you act and conduct yourselves uh, compared to what the people are in the world. So meeting Jesus impacts us personally, but it also impacts the people that Jesus has put in our life. The people in your life are because God has placed them in your life so they can meet Jesus through you. Through your words, through your actions, through your conduct. They should see Jesus coming out of you. So here in Acts 9, Paul's waiting in Damascus. And many of us know this story. Jesus goes and summons one of his disciples who actually lives in Damascus named Ananias. And he says, look, there's a guy named Saul. I need you to go and speak to him. And so that his sight may be returned and he may become a disciple of mine. And just like we do, Ananias says, yes, Lord, I'm in, right? No. He knows of Saul. He knows Saul's background, what we've read in Philippians and Galatians. And he says, Lord, you're out of your holy mind. I'm not going to talk to that man. Eventually, Jesus convinces him or convicts him. And Ananias goes and he presents the Lord Jesus Christ to Saul so that Saul can actually understand who he met on the road and meet and accept Jesus as his own. And when Saul does, we're told in verse 17 of chapter 9, Saul receives the Holy Spirit. And then he becomes baptized in verse 18. Now, baptism is our, part of our confession of faith that we have met Jesus and we believe who he is. That he died for us and he rose again. And so we're following in his footsteps. We're being buried in the water to baptism and we're rising again. Baptism in scripture is something that you should do if you're a believer. If you have not been baptized, you should be baptized. It is not something that gives you eternal life. Again, we don't work for our salvation. nothing we can do to prove our salvation, but it confesses, okay, this is what I believe about Jesus because I've met him and accepted him. He died for me and rose again, and now I have died to my old self, and I'm rising again as a new creation. So Saul meets Jesus. He gets the Spirit. He gets baptized. And look in verse 19, the very end of it. It says, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And I think this is a sentence we can read over really quickly when we're going through the book of Acts because there are a lot of cool things that happen in this book. But it says, For some days he is with the disciples at Damascus. And we know Paul, Saul Paul. He's still known as Saul right now. We know him as a preacher. We know him as a teacher. 
We know him as a missionary. We know him as a church planter. But notice what it says he's doing here. He was with the disciples. And Luke, who wrote the letter known as Acts, doesn't tell us how long he was with them. He just says for some days. It's just a general expression of time. Luke is led by the Spirit to do this when he writes the gospel bearing his own name. It could have been a week. It could be weeks. It could be months. We don't know. The point isn't the amount of time that Saul is with the disciples. The point is that what Scripture is telling us is that Saul was with them so he could mature. So he could understand what it is this gospel was, who it was that just changed his life eternally and forever physically. And here's a man, Saul, who knew the Scriptures. He was a Pharisee, zealous for the law. That means he knew the Old Testament. He had to teach God's people the Old Testament. He had to interpret the Old Testament. He had zeal for the law of God. But here's what we get a revelation of Saul, even with his background about the Old Testament, is that he knew of God, but he did not know God. He had his own interpretation of who God was. And this allows us to know that we, can, we cannot know God until we know Jesus as our Savior. You cannot know God until you know Jesus as your Savior. And you cannot know Jesus unless you meet him and accept him as your Lord and Savior. The Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 18, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. That's speaking of Jesus. He came to make God known. Jesus said in John 14, 7, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. So Paul met with the disciples so he could know God for real instead of the God that he had invented. Because he could only know the one true God through Jesus Christ. So people in this world may believe in a God. They may have an understanding of God. They may even know some of the stories about God. But unless they have Jesus Christ, they don't actually know God. And that's a huge thing. And so Paul's maturing here. Saul's maturing here at the end of verse 19 in chapter 9. And here's the thing about maturing in our relationship. It can happen alone. Maybe we just need a reminder this morning that we should be reading our Bible every single day. Whether that's through the physical scriptures, whether that's through your phone app or whatever medium you use, you should be reading the Word of God every day. And we should be studying the Word of God every day. And there's a difference between studying and reading. Reading is, is just going through and you kind of get an idea of what's going on. Studying is stopping, thinking on it, pondering on it, asking questions about it, and then looking for the application. What is, does this mean to me in my life? What is God trying to tell me right now? And it may be just something simple. It may be something profound. It may be something we have to sit on for several days. Just because we don't get that poof revelation the first time we sit with John 3.16 doesn't mean we should move on to John 3.17. Maybe we should just sit there and meditate on that and think about what is God trying to tell me, even though I may be familiar with that verse, how is he trying to create in me a new heart and to transform me more like Christ? How is he trying to discipline me, correct me, reproof me, rebuke me? So Paul's maturing and he's He's maturing with other believers because even though we can do it alone, what we learn about maturing in the book of Acts and through Paul's letters 
is maturing our relationship with God is amplified when with other believers. When we're sitting with other believers, and not necessarily in this format, but we're able to sit and we're able to talk and sharpen one another's iron sharpens iron, that maturing process begins to amplify. I have individuals I've asked to come in my life to, that have been in ministry or in ministry and, and to ask them, okay, what do you see that I don't? Because, you know, we have all this, this background. We have all this cultural upbringing. We, we maybe lived in Stratford in this area our entire life. And so there's things that we're actually blind to because we're so used to stuff. And so, that can happen with Scripture. When we're so used to a verse or a passage or a story that we need other people to say, okay, how do you see this? What is God speaking to you through this? And it kind of opens our eyes and we allow another believer to come and help us mature in our relationship with God. Ethan, go ahead and throw 2 Peter 3.18 up there. God commands us to mature. He says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and to Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Now I want to focus on that first part. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The word grow in the Greek means to increase and to spread. So God is commanding us to grow. We are to increase and in spread. What's the first thing? We are to increase and spread in our understanding of grace. Why? Because when we understand grace on deeper levels, it enables us to show grace the way God intends it to be shown. And then he says, we're also to grow, increase, and spread in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that word knowledge from the Greek means that we are to grow in what we know, and we are to grow in what is yet to be known. So we are to grow in what we know about God, and we are to grow in what has yet to be known about God. This is what God is commanding. This is how we mature. And so Jesus tells us in John 14 that when we meet Jesus, God manifests himself to us. That's verse 21 of chapter 14 in John. And the word manifest means to make known, knowledge, maturing. It means to make visible, clear, to inform. This can only happen is if God's people, we are maturing in our relationship with God. That we are seeking after him. We are thirsting for him. Now we're turning back here to Acts 9. Look what Paul does after he meets Jesus and begins to mature in his relationship. Verse 20. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. Now these are the same synagogues that Saul was set on going to to get the information about who are the followers of Jesus Christ here in Damascus so I can take them back to Jerusalem and throw them in prison. And so here what we learn, when Paul was with the disciples, then immediately began to proclaim, maturing is to lead to ministry. It's to lead to mission. We just don't gain more and more knowledge of God so we can rattle off more and more things about God and we can spit out scripture verses and things like that. We, we mature so we can teach others about God and his word so that they can meet Jesus. So if you have been a follower of Christ, you call yourself a Christian, 
then during that time when you accepted Christ, how have you been maturing in Christ and in that relationship for the purpose of being on mission for the kingdom of God? It's not so we can keep it to ourselves. And this became Saul Paul's heartbeat. Now, Saul disappears from Scripture after this event through chapters 10 through 11, but he returns in verse 19 of chapter 11. And the focus of 10 through 11 goes on to Peter. And what Peter ends up doing is he gets this dream, which we're all thankful for, about eating you know, from the pig, you know, get some bacon, and Peter doesn't want to do it because he's a Jewish individual. This is a new concept to him. He has yet to fully understand the grace of God and what God has done for him through Jesus Christ. And so he wrestles with that. But then he goes off to Cornelius' house, who is a Gentile, to present the gospel of Jesus Christ so Cornelius and his entire family could meet Jesus and receive the Holy Spirit. And when this happens, we may read it in Scripture like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But this is mind-blowing for Peter because up to this point, only Jews have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He was the king of the Jews. He was the Messiah and the Savior from the Jewish people for the Jewish people. But now Gentiles... And so Peter goes back and reports what's happening with the Gentiles. They, too, are becoming saved. They, too, are receiving the Holy Spirit. And this is God paving the way for Paul's ministry. Because Peter, at this point in, in time, holds a lot more weight within the church and the world than Saul Paul does. People are still wrestling with Saul's background about persecuting the church. So here is Paul. And he's tightly tied to the Jewish religious system. Again, he grew up in that. But God is commissioning him to go preach the gospel to Gentiles, people who were not a part of the covenantal family, and who the Jewish people who Saul was overlooked entirely. Even if they were half Jew, they didn't want nothing to do with them. But in Acts chapter 11, Saul reappears. He's not going by Paul yet. And look in verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. See, that's telling us they still believe, okay, this, this new salvation, this gospel, this spirit is just for the Jewish people. This is going to change all through persecution. Verse 20, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the years of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came, he saw the grace of God. He was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Verse 25, So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. By the way, Christians was meant as a joke. They were poking fun of these individuals because they looked so much like Jesus, they talked so much like Jesus, and acted so much like Jesus. They said, Christians, they're little Christs. And so that's why we call ourselves Christians. Because we represent Christ. We look, act, and talk so much like Jesus, there's no other word that defines us. Because we belong to him. Well, to understand what's going on here in Acts chapter 11, 
So the death, the martyrdom of Stephen, which we saw, Saul was there. He approved of it. So the believers began to flee Jerusalem. Now some stayed, the apostles stayed, and one of the places we're told they landed was a place called Antioch. It was a city. Antioch was the largest city in the area. It was actually capital of the Roman province of Syria. Now only in the believers, only the believers in Antioch, the ones who fled, had Jesus Christ. But then when they come to Antioch, they begin engaging in mission and ministry, and look what happens. Other people began meeting Christ. They began to multiply. People began getting saved. That's how people get saved. That's how people meet Jesus. We, as God's people, have to proclaim him. We have to present him. We have to preach him. We have to allow people to meet Jesus through our presentation and the way we live our life. So people began calling on Jesus. He became their Lord and Savior. Now, the issue up to this point is up to this point, only Jews had accepted Jesus, except for Peter's report about what happened in Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 10. And though Peter had explained that the Gentiles are now being saved, what happened here in Antioch was an explosion of salvation. So much that the church in Jerusalem, which at this time in history, the church in Jerusalem was the mother church of Christianity. That's where the apostles taught. That's where they remained for the most part. Well, this explosion of salvation begins happening in this Gentile town of Antioch, so much that the apostles who were ministering in Jerusalem decide, we need to send somebody to go investigate what's happening there. And so they elect Barnabas, who is a good man, full of the Holy Spirit of faith, verse 24. And so the Barnabas is this devout Christian. He's so devout that he sells a field and he gives all the proceeds of that field and lays it at the apostles' feet so they can continue to do ministry and mission for the people. He doesn't take any of it for himself. Well, the apostles say, Barnabas, we need to send you to Antioch. We need you to figure out what's happening there because we're catching word. We're catching wind of God doing something incredible. So Barnabas arrives in Antioch. And he sees this great number of people that have come to the Lord. And you know what Barnabas, or Barnabas realized he needs? Backup. He sees this mission of people needing to mature. And he understands, I cannot do this by myself. And so he goes to Tarsus. And the reason he goes to Tarsus and not back to Jerusalem is because Jerusalem is 350 plus miles from Antioch. And you're talking traveling by foot. While Tarsus is just across the bay. And in Tarsus, Barnabas knows there's a man named Saul who had recently come to Jerusalem to meet with Peter and James. Barnabas probably wasn't in that encounter, but he probably heard about what God did in the life of Saul, who was once persecuting church, but is now proclaiming Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is probably in Tarsus because that's his hometown. See, Saul, Paul had met Jesus Christ, and one thing laid upon his heart is that he wanted his family and friends to also meet Jesus Christ. So he's in Tarsus preaching in his hometown. Well, Barnabas recruits Saul Paul to come back to Antioch to aid him in the ministry through teaching. And this is a great reminder about mission and ministry. Mission and ministry is meant to be done together. This is why we gather as a church. As a pastor, I can't do everything at the church. And that's actually not what you, you, you called me here to do as a pastor. Here, here's just a simple example. I can't do nursery and children's church at the same time while preaching in this room. 
I can't be everywhere. I can't do everything. There, there are times I walk through the church building and I see things that need to be fixed or done. But you know what? I know my inability to do such things. And so I typically call Richard Campbell or Joe Losh, maybe Tristan, and I say, hey, what do you think about this? What needs to be done? Because they have more talents and gifts when it comes to that. And so I can't do those sort of things. I can duct tape holes. That's, that's about it. But we're not called to do everything, even if you aren't the pastor. Ministry and mission is to be done together by all who form the body of Christ, the church. And so we've said it numerous times in the past. This is where God has called you to be. He's not calling you here to do everything. But he has called you here to do something. And so it's about pursuing after his leadership and what he has called us to do. Now, in Acts chapter 12, the focus flips back to Jerusalem. And it comes to the martyrdom of James the Apostle, the arrest and the release of Peter, and eventually the death of King Herod. And during all of this, in verse 24 of Acts chapter 12, we're said the word of God increased and multiplied. And what we learn from this is even though we're maturing, even though we're on mission and ministry for Christ, even though we may be multiplying, this doesn't mean everyone that we present Christ to is going to accept Christ. And it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. James was martyred for the faith. Peter was arrested because he was preaching Jesus. And so that doesn't mean being on mission and ministry is going to be easy within the church. There are going to be people that want nothing to do with it. There are going to be people that are going to oppose us. You look through the book of Acts and you see Paul's ministry. He was beaten, imprisoned, mocked throughout his entire ministry. You can read of that through Acts 13 through 20. But also in the midst of being beaten, mocked, and, and put in prison, we find through Paul's ministry, because he was faithful to the mission for the sake of multiplying for other people to meet Jesus, that that is in fact what happened. Even though he was heavily opposed, many came to the faith, which is why we have the majority of the New Testament, because he's writing to these believers who have now met Jesus so they might mature in the relationship. So we multiply... So others can meet Jesus. And when they meet Jesus, we may be the instrument that God wants to use to help them mature in their relationship with God, which calls us to be on mission and ministry for the kingdom. So multiplication can then happen again. We're commanded by Jesus to make disciples, Matthew 28, 19. And this command to make disciples is until the end of all things. So until Jesus returns... We as his people and we as his church are to be disciple-making factories. And we can only do this through our relationship with Christ because he has made us fishers of men. So the question for us this morning is where are we on this heartbeat? Is our heart spiritually healthy? I look across the room and I see many of us here have already met Jesus. We've already proclaimed and accepted him as our Lord and Savior. Many of us here have been maturing in our relationship with God. We've been in his word. We listen to other preachers as we drive down the road. We read books that help grow us in our faith and challenge us in our faith. But are we on mission? Are we in ministry? Are we being used by God because God wants to use all of us so others can meet Jesus through us? So for sake that we can multiply. This isn't about having a bigger church. This isn't about having more people here. It's about people coming to Christ for eternal salvation. 
So the final question this morning may be, have you met Jesus personally? Again, Paul knew of God, but he did not know God. And maybe that's you here this morning. You know of God. You've heard the stories, but you don't actually know God because you've yet to accept Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. And this is the gospel which Paul presents, which God presents through Paul. That God created us for a relationship with him. It is our sins and everyone's sins and fall short of the glory of God which separate us from God. And we cannot remove our sin problem. But Jesus Christ paid the price for our sins by dying on the cross and rising again. And the Bible says everyone who believes in this as truth, that Jesus died for them and rising again, that they might be forgiven for their sins and be given eternal life, who believes in their heart that this is truth, must confess it, that Jesus is our Lord and Savior and they have a need for him. So if you're here this morning and you've yet to accept Jesus Christ, this is where the heartbeat begins. You must meet him personally. Nick's going to come up and lead us in a time of worship. I'll be down here if you need to talk about accepting Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. Or maybe you need to come and kneel before the Father because maybe you've been maturing. You've been learning more, but you haven't really been using what God's been teaching you to proclaim Jesus Christ to others so they might meet him and mature as well. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us and taking care of us. Thank you for the truth of your word, thank you that you want a relationship with us. You don't want us just to have had knowledge about you. I thank you for everyone that's here this morning. I thank you for just allowing us once again to be in your word, be in your presence, to have your spirit speak to our hearts. Father, as we come into this new year, we ask that you just continue to guide and direct us to be the church you need us to be, be the people you need us to be. Help us to Check our hearts and make sure that it is a heart that is thirsting for you and to be doing what you want us to be doing. I thank you for what you have set aside for us to do for this next year. I thank you for the way you've continued to bless us and take care of us in this past year. But Lord, we know there's still greater things yet to come. And so we want to continue to glorify you. We want to continue to proclaim you and lift you high. We come this time of invitation, Lord, if there's someone here this morning who's come to the understanding that they need to be saved, Lord, I pray that your spirit would just empower them and embolden them to come down the aisle and let that be known. Thank you again for allowing us to be here. We praise in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.